When two young men lose their lives in drunken assaults in the space of a few weeks, governments declare enough is enough and enact strict regulation to prevent another incident. We could compare that to a lot of other uh, government actions as well, of course. But despite one woman being killed in Australia by a current or former partner every week, in fact, we know now that in 2015, it has been more than two women on average every single week who have been killed so far this year uh, by a current or former partner. Despite that, family violence doesn't attract anywhere near an equivalent amount of airtime or popular outrage. And I'd add to that uh, government action and funding. But I think that is changing. And one of the reasons for that change, I believe, is the woman we're going to be hearing from today, Rosie Batty. She awed Australians with her eloquence and compassion after her 11-year-old son, Luke, was murdered by his estranged father in February of last year. In the intervening years, she's shown that extraordinary resolve of hers was no fluke as she's worked tirelessly to encourage a conversation about family violence in Australia, one that might help us work out what we can do to stop it. I would add to that personally um, that I feel Rosie Batty is the most important voice in this country on this subject, not because she's the only voice. There's been so many who have fought for so long and campaigned so hard literally in the shadows, but because she is the voice that has broken through. She has managed to be heard on an issue that people do not want to hear about and do not want to discuss, an issue that is not new, but an issue that we need to do something about. So enough from me. Um, I know we all want to hear from Rosie today. Uh, there'll be a conversation after her talk, and I hope some good questions from you as well. Um, and now uh, we're going to watch a short video and then hear from Rosie Batty. Let's give her a big round of applause, a warm welcome to the Opera House today. Almost incomprehensible plot. Luke's father Greg attacked his son with a bat and a knife. Happens to everybody, no matter how nice your house is, how intelligent you are. It happens to anyone and everyone. Rosie Batty's here with us this morning. The person uh, I know uh, is talking about He you. says he was inspired by Rosie Batty's The message has been so strong. have made a difference. But very quickly, you know, I'm an advocate. I'm the voice of family violence. I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, I've got nothing to lose and nothing more to be frightened about. So I am in a position to be able to utilise and reach and, and really truly understanding that unless you are affected by family violence, people don't know how much of a problem it is. Family violence may happen behind closed doors, but it needs to be brought out from these shadows and into broad daylight. One in four children and at least one woman a week is killed. As the Australian of the Year, I am committed to building greater campaigns to educate and challenge community attitudes. I am on a path to expose family violence and to ensure that victims receive the respect, support 
and safety that they deserve. Don't stand up, you'll make me cry. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, what a great day. We must be having a great time. So many women in the Opera House. How can you not have great energy? Thank you, Tara. I'm looking forward to having a chat after I've had a bit of a speak and a chat to you guys. Um, sitting round the back, watching that little video there and just transporting back in time, which was just over a year ago. It was on the 12th of February last year when Luke was killed by his dad. Um, I, I'm sure that you're all aware of what happened and what, that's why you're here today. Um, we have to be really clear. Luke was killed as the ultimate act of power and control. Because violence is a gender issue and it's about power and control. And the reason people listen to me is because Luke died in a public place killed by the man who loved him. That story is horrific it's real and no one can dispute it. So with everybody's support, I've been able to have the confidence and the drive to keep talking. Your support is amazing. Your willingness to listen, to speak out, to confront and challenge is amazing because this is decades and decades and decades of a social issue that before never got listened to, no one wanted to know. I look at myself a year ago and a friend of mine, a very dear friend, he rang me and he said, Rosie, Get your shit together, woman. You look like crap. <laughs> I did, but I could be excused. I've got my shit together. And it's going to stay together because... <laughs> because I am so humbled by every day, people saying to me, good on you, Rosie, you're making such a difference. It keeps me going and it keeps me realising how proud Luke would be of what I'm doing. There are so many women and children living in fear 
and it should not be happening, not in this day and age, not in our neighbourhoods, not in our countries, but it is. So we need to bring this conversation out from the shadows. We need to discuss it. We need to debate it. We need to hold people with unacceptable behaviour accountable. Because while we do discuss it openly, our distorted views of what we think family violence is and why it's caused come out and we can challenge each other with some of the naivety and prejudices that some of us, and a lot of us do hold, men or women. When I spoke out that day, I'd been laying in a stupor. I was in shock. And when I woke up, my friends were saying, there's all that media out there, Rosie. Don't go, don't go. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, what are they going to do to me? So I strode out there that day to say to them, thank you for coming. I know you've got a job to do, but maybe you could just leave. But I ended up talking to them. And that night, I kind of thought, oh God, what have I done? I was dreading my friends saying, Rosie, look, what did you say? But in actual fact, what I hadn't realised was what I said was very powerful. It was not rehearsed. I'd like to say I had prepared a script, but I had no idea what was coming out of my mouth. But what was coming out of my mouth intuitively is what I knew. That violence, family violence, can happen to anybody. It doesn't affect just those poor people in unsavoury suburbs. It happens to women like me, like you, because it happens to one in three women. So it doesn't matter how educated you are, how professional you are, how good looking you are, where you live, what suburb, what country. It happens to one in three women. So when we understand it's happening to so many, you have to wonder why the hell we don't know about that. Do we see it on the news? Do we see it as a statistic? No. Why is that? Why do we know so much about deaths on our roads, um, uh, committed in public transport areas, king hit on the street? But why don't we understand that actually two women a week now are being killed by a current or an ex-partner? Two women a week. One in four children is affected permanently by family violence. Those little children, whether it's a girl or a boy, do they grow up perpetuating violence or do they grow up with permanent trauma and affected abilities to choose healthy relationships into the future? These are damning statistics and we have to force governments to take leadership, to force change, investing support services for the women and the children who have to flee their own homes. 
But very importantly, we have to look in our own backyards. We have to challenge behaviour that we see within ourselves. We have to be the role model and we have to challenge behaviour towards our children because we set the example. So we're talking about the myths of family violence and how we expect it to happen to somebody else, somebody not like us. I defy those myths because, you see, there was never any violence in my family. I'd never known it at all, ever, until I met Greg. And you see, I didn't sport bruises and broken bones. Predominantly, the violence I experienced was psychological. Very hard to prove, very hard to be believed. But psychological abuse, just as the other forms of abuse being financial, sexual, spiritual, they're all extremely dangerous, extremely difficult to experience. And the journey is isolating because sometimes your best friends and your own family minimise your journey. We don't know what to do, so we detach ourselves from it. And we tend to blame our victims. We tend to blame them for the silly choices they've made and the reasons why they stay. And we're critical and judgmental, and that really saddens me. And we offer advice that is simplistic, uninformed and unhelpful. We're not prepared to support and validate the experiences of the victims. And our organisations who respond and should be responding with the best interests of our victims in mind, again, further disappoint and let us down. Because you see, strangely, a woman can't be believed. What's that about? Why do we have to work so hard to be believed? It's a really good question. And maybe somebody would like to ask that later. But it's very disappointing when you're finally driven to going to the police and going through the court processes to find the very organisations and structures turn against you too. That is exactly what happens now. Not on every occasion, but a lot of occasions. We have to work until we have every policeman, every magistrate, every judge understanding the complexities of family violence and supporting the women and children and putting their safety first and foremost. I will not stop until that happens. But we all have a sense of responsibility. And what I'd really like us to start to do, instead of questioning why, does she, why doesn't she leave, I want you to say, well, if she was to leave, let's just think about this. 
because it actually places her into the biggest danger that she's ever experienced. That is the time when she can be killed or very, very seriously injured. And we ask, why doesn't she leave? The degree of fear and uncertainty we expect our victims to take full responsibility for their own safety. How ironic. What are our options? To flee to a crisis centre, be placed into a refuge that can keep us safe temporarily. And there, when do we go to? How can we guarantee that we're going to be able to live in safety? Because you see, even when you do leave, that doesn't guarantee that the violence ends. The only time the violence ends is actually when the perpetrator decides to stop. So what we really need to do is change the discussion from what I see as victim blaming and placing all ownership of responsibility onto the victim. We need to have conversations around perpetrator behaviour. What is it that makes men violent? Do we blame? Do we look for excuses? Do we look for excuses like, she nagged him, she wasn't a very nice person, he had to put up with that? Do we understand that it could be because of drugs and alcohol? or mental illness? Absolutely not. Violence is a choice. Sure, it's exacerbated by those other addictions and behaviour problems, but very, very clearly, and something we have to totally understand, this is a gender issue, and it's caused by power and control. That is what Luke did, Greg did. He loved his son. He may have been violent towards me. He might have been abusive. He might have been unpleasant and controlling, but he lived, loved his son. How the hell can you get to the point where you could kill your own child to get back at me? To make me suffer for the rest of my life? So you see, people have to listen to me because my story is so horrific, nobody wants to go through it. Luke was a quirky kid. I wasn't the best mother. I was a great mother, but I found discipline difficult. I preferred having fun with him, spoiling him and making the most of our life. I loved taking him to new places, showing him new things. I brought him to Sydney when he was two. We went on the water taxis around Taronga Zoo, Darling Harbour. We had a great time. The things I'm sad about now is the bridge climb we won't be able to do and the things I can't show him. So I no longer stick with the tragedy of when he got killed. I'm sad about the opportunities to enjoy life 
moving forward. And when people say, how do you cope? How do you get up every day? What I would like to say to you is, I think we all have an amazing ability to push through adversity that you would never think you can. If anyone had said to me a year or so ago, I could possibly have lost Luke, I wouldn't have thought I could ever pick myself up again. But you know, what women do extremely well, we support each other. You have the, we have the ability to arrive on someone's doorsteps with cooked meals, toilet rolls, flowers, amazing energy and support. And the kindness I've experienced from both men and women alike gives me the reason to believe in humanity, to believe in the good of people, to know that moving forward, hate and blame and bitterness are not what I want to become. It is about trying to be the best person you can be throughout the life and the adversities that we're given. And what I love now is people greet me with a warmth and an excitement because I'm Australian of the Year. They don't look at me with dread and sorrow and embarrassment because they don't know what to say. So the journey I'm on now are full of amazing opportunities, meeting amazing people from all walks of life. And it gives me a reason to know I'm on the right path. And together we're going to see a huge change. But we've got a long way to go. And we need to look and challenge the way that we view the world and our place in it. My mother was six, I was six, sorry, when my mother died. And when people say to me, how the hell did you, how can you cope? I, I used to think to myself, well, when my mum died, I didn't think anything as bad could ever happen again. I kind of thought that was my trade in this lifetime. But it did. But somehow I think I've had a lifetime of knowing how to take care of myself, how to support myself, how to find that strength within. So I think we should all be proud of who we are and we should be proud of the journey we traverse through life and know that every day we do the best we can with what we have and what we know and what we learn. And each day we can be better and each day can be better again. And I want to thank you for today and I hope you've got lots of questions to ask Tara and myself because it's great to be here and welcomed into the Opera House. When they first asked me, which was some months ago, I was in Geelong and they said, somebody from the Opera House is trying to get hold of you. I thought, I can't sing. <laughs> Luke would never even let me sing at all in the car. He would be furious with me when I tried to sing. And as I've often said, and I wouldn't be up here dancing either. So the best I can do is speak. 
And Luke had the gift of the gab like his mum. And people have often said, Rosie, you can talk, talk underwater with marbles in your mouth. So I think that's what I'm able to do is show, share my strength and I hope pass on some words of wisdom and change some thinking. So thank you for sharing my journey. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie, and thank you for sharing your strength. Um, I think probably there's a lot of us in the theatre today who have taken strength um, from your incredible example. And um, it's a very important conversation that we're happening, that's happening nationally. And I really do think that you're a very large part of that, not only as Australian of the Year, but as that voice that has broken through. Um, so let's talk about some of the issues. Um, you mentioned that Luke was killed as an ultimate act of power and control, and I wonder if you can expand on that issue of power and control, because I think that has been very misunderstood in the past. I think, um, you know, we do really try to understand how can someone do this? When you're in the cycle of violence with a partner or someone you know, it can start off with, with verbal abuse. And invariably, there is a continuum of violence. That unless there is serious intervention, it just continues. So as your response to the violence becomes normalised, you accept it, it doesn't have the same degree of effect on you, violence always continues to get worse. So over those years where I... You know, I never lived with Greg. It was my home. I was the income earner. I had the full financial responsibility of raising Luke. So he could push my buttons and get to me, and it was, you know, in certain ways. But then over the years, as those things started to just... I used to think, oh, for God's sake, who cares, you know? Um, at the end, I basically was the strongest I've been for the 13 years I'd known him. And I was starting to make him accountable by taking him to court and had to find a boundary that I wouldn't let him pass. Mm. So that's where, you know, you are becoming very in a very dangerous position, but of course you're not necessarily to know that because um, you're doing what people have suggested that you should do, which is go to court, take out an intervention order, um, you have a sense of fear because you're not quite sure what he, how angry he will be that you're putting him through this. Um, so at the end, what else can you do to hurt me? Because everything else has been done. Well, you, you touched on an issue that I think a lot of members of the public aren't necessarily aware of, which is that... Um, often the first six-month period after separation is where it can be the most dangerous. 
So um, unfortunately, it's very lazy thinking when we, I mean, victim blaming is always lazy thinking, but it, it particularly aggravates me that people won't take that extra step to actually see what it is that they're asking people to do. They're asking for people in fear who don't have enough support to enter into a, a period of time which was potentially more dangerous than what they're already in. And they're going to do that um, without adequate support. Mm. And they're going to do that uh, despite the fact that we do have a court system and a legal system which has flaws in it. Um, and unfortunately, that's something you know too well. Um, I know we are all, I think, here aware um, that you've been using your you know, incredible profile as Australian of the Year to do such incredibly uh, important things. And one of those things has been talking about the structures in place, talking about uh, some of the legal issues. Can you let us know anything about those conversations and if there's movement and what you feel will be the future with relationship to the actual institutional response and legal response? I think... Um, <coughs> Excuse me. The ignorance surrounding family violence exists in all professions <coughs> and all tiers of um, leadership. There's still this misconception that violence um, is physical mm. and um, unless you can see bruises, you can't really prove. And as I said, you invariably disbelieved unless you can really prove something. So we have a lot of work to do within our court systems to actually make sure that every magistrate and every judge understands the complexities of family violence. Mm. Because currently what can happen throughout our court processes that if there hasn't been a violent incident recently, that's an indicator of future safety, which is absolutely not the case. Past behaviour is a predictor of future behaviour. And our children are not seen as seriously because parental rights are seen as more important than the safety of our children. And that is an absolute flaw that cannot continue. So we are starting to see the magistrates' courts really acknowledging that the burden that, and, that they have to work within is really strained mm. and we have to look at new processes. Mm. But the very fundamental thing is changing attitudes, mm. ingrained attitudes. Um, and unfortunately, you know, when <coughs> you look for <coughs> safety, no one can guarantee your safety 24-7. They just can't. Mm. So we're asking people to, you know, ultimately in extreme situations, change their identity, go and live in another country with false identities or interstate or live in hiding. So that's what we place on our victims currently, <coughs> the expectation that it will be them hmm. rather than the perpetrator change behaviour. This was something um, that was brought up at the... Uh, at Parliament House the other day when I was at the launch of the Full Stop Foundation and just talking about how we expect uh, so much of people who have been uh, subjected to violence and subjected to psychological violence, usually over a very long period of time, 
Um, those of you who are uh, experienced in areas of trauma, complex trauma is what you most often see in domestic violence situations. So it's not a, a one-off, um, it's not a one-off trauma that's occurred. It's often something that is built over years. It's a continuum mm -hmm. of, of violence, as Rosie's mentioned, and um, that has its own consequences. It's isolating, it affects a person's uh, sense of themselves, and there is an ongoing fear. Um, and one of the things that was brought up was, again, that we expect uh, a person who's had that experience, sometimes over a very uh, prolonged period of time, to then go out into the world. Sometimes they are not um, economically equipped to do so. Um, and we expect that person to somehow be able to function and in many cases look after a family, look after a child without support. And this is something that makes me, again, quite aggravated because we... We now finally have a public conversation. We have a political conversation happening, but the services that assist people who are going through this are chronically underfunded. Yeah. Chronically underfunded. And that's where I actually want to mention the Luke Batty Foundation again, and I don't know if we can bring the slide up. Uh, if you're on your phones, think about today, tweeting out lukebattyfoundation.com.au. You can see it there. And also think about even just letting people know about the services that are available, like the 1-800-RESPECT number. Mm -hmm. And Rosie was recently involved in um, the, the launch of the app, the, the Daisy, Daisy app. app. Yeah, which is basically an app um, that's downloadable currently on Android and, and will be iPhone. But um, it's certainly a resource where <clears throat> if you're not sure where to go for the right specialist assistance or where to advise your friend or family member, um, or work colleague, where to go, this app actually points you wherever you are in Australia mm. to the right resources. Um, and, you know, certainly when we look at, you know, that trauma that you're placed in, when you go to court, you cannot afford to be seen emotional, mm. anxious, depressed, not coping. You have not, you cannot afford to be to let your true mm. emotions be on display because otherwise it's held against you. It's, it's in, incredible. And so when you also consider that through that extended period of abuse, like myself, you will start to exhibit um, or experience chronic anxiety, um, depression, and a lot of those other kind of mental illnesses. And, um, you know, it isn't, it, it isn't always safe for you to be able to acknowledge, mm. acknowledge that. And also your experience too, going into your local GP. It may be that they also don't recognise and support mm. family violence or know how to handle your situation. So it, we've got a lot of work to do for all professions that you come into contact. Mm. Because from my experience, you really need specialist service responses to able to help you. Otherwise, you may feel criticised and judged or the advice you're given is, is not what you really want to hear or feel able to take in. But the specialised services like 1-800-RESPECT help link you and talk to you so that you know that you're, you're being supported, you're being understood and no one is forcing you to do anything but they are validating your journey. And I think sometimes that very first time someone mm. actually validates your experience, that it's not your fault, 
that you have, it's not you, you're not to blame. That can be so empowering. Mm. Yes, it's uh, one of the things I would really like to see change, even just within the media. It's something we can very easily do. Any of you who are members of the media, please consider having the 1-800-RESPECT um, hotline yeah. at the bottom of any article that may be dealing with issues of sexual assault, domestic violence or family violence. Um, we need everyone to be aware of this service and despite my advocacy in this area, I was not even aware of the service until last year. And again, we need to invest in change, but we also need to invest in these frontline services and that 1-800-RESPECT, which is a national free professional counselling service, so it's not uh, staffed by volunteers, although volunteers do extremely important work. These are all professionally mm -hmm. trained counsellors and trained in trauma. Um, responses. So that is available to anyone regardless of gender or sexual orientation, whether they're experiencing uh, the violence now or did 50 years ago. You can call that number. Um, there's also an online service, so if you don't want to speak to someone on the phone, you can do that. But again, chronically underfunded, so over 55,000 calls were taken by 1-800-RESPECT last year, nearly 20,000, even more than 20,000, I think. Those calls went unanswered. To me, that's completely unacceptable. We need to fully fund these services. But we also need to work on um, both cultural change and behavioral change. So let's talk about one of the big myths, and you, you touched on that before. Um, let's talk about victim blaming, uh, the forms that takes, and you know, basically what the message that we need to get out there about changing this fallback position of victim blaming. Can you talk about that? Well, I think... You know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how we always look for reasons to blame the woman. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether it's um, causing it because she hasn't let him see the children or um, she nags too much or... But again, all the responsibility and blame is placed on the woman. Mm. And we just really haven't unpacked mm. what the real issue is here. I mean... It's not that long ago where you would expect that if you married a violent man, that was your bed and you had to lie in it and there was no one to come and help you, no one. Everyone understood mm. it happened behind closed doors. But when mm. we actually realise now that, you know, the instances and the prevalence of family violence in other cultures and particularly mm. You know, while we're in Australia, we even talk about um, Aboriginal mm. women and their children. Mm. Um, it is horrific, mm. and the you know, it's uh, I can't remember the percentage of how more likely it is. It's, um, it's Indigenous women are 38 times more likely to be hospitalised. 45, okay. The latest stat I heard was 38, so 38 or 45, and also 10 times more likely to die from um, assaults like these. So it's a it's a very serious issue and also um, in Australia, intimate partner violence is the number one non-disease related cause of death, disability and illness in women between the ages of 15 and 44. Number one cause. So where uh, women are on the home where they should feel safest is actually the most dangerous yeah. place for them statistically. It's more dangerous than cancer and more dangerous than the roads. So this is how serious the issue is. Um, uh, when you, and yes. like you said, Tara, with the victim blaming, we, we mm. put all responsibility onto the victim. Mm. They're to blame. They have to go and, mm. and find safety. They have to change their life. 
They have to take their kids or leave mm. their kids. Mm. You know, they have to go into another, other areas to live away from their extended family, community, mm. friends. Mm. Mm. So we, we put all of this onto the victim, which is ridiculous when mm. you actually look at it logically and the perpetrator continues mm. to hold down his job, drink with his mates, mm. be seen as a local good bloke. Mm. And no one has necessarily challenged what he's doing to his wife and family. And the stories of victim blaming, there was a lady, I think it's in Marysville, who um, from an instance of family violence lost her eye. Mm. And the gentleman involved was put into prison. But he was also a local hero. He was a fire for, the, for combating the fires. Mm. And it came up that his award should be taken off him. Mm. So he was put in prison for um, assaulting her and, and, and losing her eye, but the local community still blame her. Yeah. And how incredible could that be <laughs> that she's actually yeah. blamed for him being in prison? when he did that to her. It, it, it's something we need to all take uh, responsibility for in our own mm. communities, you know, challenging our own attitudes because so much of this is the, the, the path of least resistance. We see the way other people talk. We see the narrative. Mm. Uh, and sometimes also in some of the reporting, there can be a, a focus on the victim and her choices. Um, and again, we need to remind ourselves, as Rosie has said, that violence is a choice. Um, now, I'm, we're going to go to questions very soon. So those of you who would like to ask questions, there's a microphone here and another microphone there. Um, and I wanted to, first of all, though, ask that question while anyone else who wants to come forward can start coming to the microphones. I wanted to ask that question. Um, why is it so hard for women to be believed, Rosie? Is it because of Adam and Eve? <laughs> we ate the apple. <laughs> Honestly, you know, really, does it yeah, all Pandora go back? Pandora opened the, uh, the box, uh, yeah. Eve ate the apple. Okay. Yeah. So we, um, and I read your book, Tara, so, you know, it, I look at, after reading your book and looking at the views of the world through different eyes now where you do challenge and question mm. um, all those views of women and how we're portrayed. Mm. Um, it is really interesting. So I, why is it that we're not believed? I, it's a very good question. Has anyone got that answer? Mm. <laughs> mm. Everyone's so silent. As I don't see... Oh, no, I, I do see one person walking up to the microphone, so we'll, we'll take the first question. Thank you. doesn't seem like it's on, is that? <coughs> That's okay, I've yep. got a voice again. Okay, good. <coughs> I was silent for many years. Oh, sorry, I was looking down here, is there? <laughs> <laughs> there? Sorry. Hi, Rosie, thank you so much for reaching out to so many people on such a national scale. Thank you. I cannot say thank you loud enough, actually. <laughs> um, I was silent for five years and I was in a high-profile job that I actually left uh, because I was subjected to violence just unexpectedly and I didn't have the words. I, mm. I wasn't aware of the vocab and I learned uh, afterwards 
um, yeah. you know, even what sexual assault is or assault or red flags, things like that. Like, literally, we were about to get engaged and he'd asked my dad for my hand in marriage. Um, and, yeah, there's red flags for sure. And if there's any way possible, just even at events like this, mm. maybe up on the screen or as people are walking out, because I don't know if I do speak for someone or another person in the room right now, but maybe someone else mm. is currently in a situation that they're not even aware mm. is actually emotionally mm. or psychologically mm. abusive. And when I learned all those signs and got given the forms online, links to online, yeah. and could do it in the privacy of my own home, mm. Um, you know, I, I just couldn't believe the penny was yeah. clicking, that there was red flags yeah. when he said he was going to put a GPS on me because I was at a swimming pool with friends yeah. swimming, um, you know, and to take me to a place, like, I'm just so lucky I've escaped yeah. and mm. I really feel it's an escape. Um, but just even here two weeks ago that he mm. is now no longer in Sydney, there was a release yeah. mm. and I didn't realise that I'd been carrying that anxiety. Um, so you Focus have time. such a strong voice. Thank you. And Thank look, you know what, that's great. <laughs> I think there was, um, there was an incident with Greg and he'd actually called the police. And I didn't know. And I, I came home and I heard him talking through the, the wall of the house because uh, he was looking after Luke. And I came in and I thought, well, who's he talking to? And I could hear him portraying me as an unfit mother. And he was actually talking to the police. And I think, mm. what on earth is going on here? So he actually I ended up make, uh, he ended up leaving. But I immediately got into counselling. Mm. And it took a couple of um, sessions and I think he, he's, you know, the counsellor said to me, is Greg violent? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Because again, back then, I believed, and you're talking about 12 years ago, well, he hadn't hit me. And at that point, I was so confused and my self-esteem was so confused and you're so flood, foggy in your thinking. Mm. So you're right. When I actually, when the counsellor... Um, a psychologist took me through the different forms of violence and the different descriptions of violence. I realised, other than physical assault, I've been subjected to all of them and it was actually abuse. Mm. And so it, it, made, it was a defining moment for me too because I started to see it for mm. what it was. And what I would say is, if you are in a relationship and the person you're with is is making you feel suppressed inside or anxious inside or unhappy inside, well, there's something wrong. Mm. Because the right kind of person should be empowering and supporting and inspiring and, and all of the light things that you should be feeling inside. Mm. And I think that there is an app, another app, <laughs> great apps, um, that I released a few weeks ago called I Matter. Now, it, was, it is predominantly for younger women who, and it's been written for young women, but it's exactly what you're saying. It's actually, there's a lot of content in that app, but it is actually about being able to measure your relationship mm. and whether it's abusive mm. or not. 
And I think, like you say, there's the tools that people can sometimes share. So yeah. how can people access that particular app? They can just find it on their it, iPhone? It's actually or? on iPhone. It's downloadable yep. from iTunes and it will be available on Android, yeah. Um, are you able to give us a couple of examples of things that people can look for in addition to that sense of anxiety or, say, fear if you fear... Your partner, obviously, that is a sign, but... Look, I think put-downs. I think if somebody's actually putting you down, actually, you know, making you feel low, uh, um, not believing in yourself, put-downs and um, are a really good way of gauging that this mm. isn't healthy. And he um, was also cutting me off, Rosie, yeah, from isolating. my friends. Yes, isolation. Yeah. Like so yeah. Isolating and, and controlling and, you know, basically, yeah, all... A lot of those things, but a lot of things happen over time, you know. Mm. And but you know what? From right from the beginning, sometimes you know it's not right, but you kind of make allowances, or you feel so in love with them, you mm. don't want to acknowledge that, you know, and you mm. think, oh, I can live with that. That's yeah. okay. Nothing's perfect, you know. Mm. No one's perfect, and you start to make compromises, mm. you know. And and I think that sometimes those compromises you know, we realise we just should never have made from the beginning. But it's a journey, isn't it? It's a journey. Mm. And if you can get out without, you know, children becoming involved, um, you know, you can go on to have, you know, and people stop me all the time and they can be in their 70s. I have beautiful letters from women in their 80s mm. who at some point did experience violence um, and no longer are in that situation. Mm. So it, it's... Mm. But, yeah, all of those behaviours that you just know are not... They're confining you, they're reducing you, they're bringing you down. Mm. One of the things that Karen Willis from Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia talks about, and she's been working for 30 years in this sector, is that often before there's any physical violence, there will be sexual violence. So there will be uh, coercion, um, sexual coer coercion. There will be... Um, rape and that will have a psychological effect of course on the other person as well and that often they'll see that long before um, they might see other signs which a you know a neighbor might notice or someone might notice in the workplace so unfortunately it can be invisible for too long it can and i and i think that what i will say is violence is a continuum it will continue to get worse and without serious intervention, it will never change. And so when you are faced in a relationship, when you go out and when you believe and you want to believe, because sometimes violence doesn't, ha it doesn't happen necessarily every day, you know. Mm. The incidence between chronic, you know, significant violent incidences with Greg could be five years. Mm. So, but what you will always know is the next time there is a highly violent incident, it will always be worse mm. um, without serious intervention and, and assistance. I think we have time to take a question from the first microphone. Rosie, I think we're all humbled to be in your presence and very grateful for your courage in speaking out. And I'm very proud of Australia for recognising your work and mm. making you a true Australian of the year. Thank you. My question is this, is the problem in recognising, dealing the problem with the problem of domestic violence that for too long men have had control of the political, legal, police, military, all the power is with men and they think they can control women's lives and that's not right. Yes. 
Tara is very, very, very well equipped to, to talk in this area. But what I will say is I've learnt over the last 12 months to look at the importance of gender equality. And we need to see, you know, the, the more female representation in all areas of government, leadership. And when you have that, you will start to see a difference that women bring um, to this position of power and control. And you're right, it's because of the very systems that we, we have always lived within that you see these displays. And there's a history. I mean, uh, the situation that we're seeing today in these statistics is not coming out of nowhere. It's not an anomaly. Um, in fact, it wasn't really so long ago that marital rape was acceptable. So it wasn't until the 80s that there was uh, a law put in place that a person could not um, just have access to their partner's body against their will because they were married. And, of course, that was a, you know, a very gendered issue and it was uh, conjugal rights. Um, and there are many countries still today where even an estranged couple uh, are in a situation where the, the man could actually just go and seek her out and rape her and that would not be considered a crime. So we need to be aware that, that this is a history. This is a history that we have in law. Um, and it wasn't so long ago as well where if a person killed their spouse, it was a lesser crime. Oh, yeah. You would get a lesser sentence than you would with a stranger because it was considered uh, that jealousy was uh, an acceptable cause for murder. And again, that goes back to something that Rosie has spoken about very eloquently, about how this does come down to an issue of um, ownership, that there is a sense that some people have a sense of entitlement over other human beings and that they feel they are entitled to that person. If that person isn't doing what they want, if that woman isn't uh, cooperating and do what they, doing what they want, they will take control by harming that person or doing something to them to, to injure them in their lives, to cause them pain. So... Unfortunately, there's a, you know, this goes back centuries. Um, if you look at history and you look at law, you can see where, you know, where we've come from. Um, and there's a lot more to be done. It's not going to happen overnight, but uh, this conversation is incredibly important. The steps that we're seeing, uh, the steps forward are incredibly important. We all have to remember, though, that even with this raised awareness we've managed to achieve, which is just so incredibly valuable, we still have seen the violence hasn't stopped. The violence hasn't stopped in the last 40 years, even though some of the attitudes have changed. So, you know, there's a long way to go. Um, I, haven't, I was going sorry, to go say, ahead. one of the questions that perhaps um, mm. I would welcome, because mm. I think it does need to come out and be talked about, is most often when you talk about family violence and women, mm. you will always get the question by either man or woman, but what about the men? Mm. What about the man? Women are violent too. Mm. So what do we think of that? What do we think of that question? How do we respond? Because you're right, I think women and men can um, display very ugly character traits, and particularly when children are involved and use them as weapons against each other. And how do you respond when you get those questions? Because I know you get those questions quite a bit. Well, I clearly <laughs> go back to the statistics it is two women a week this year that are being killed at the hands of a male perpetrator. The violence on our streets is predominantly male, mm. is dominated by men. Mm. So I come back to statistics. Those are not the statistics. 
mm. that are being reported and mm. acknowledged. Yeah. And when you've got, you know, I can speak for the Victorian Police Force and, um, and their response, they absolutely acknowledge it as a gender issue. Yeah. And I think that's part of the... That's, that will be a huge breakthrough mm. when we actually absolutely acknowledge it for mm. it being that issue mm. and not trying to blame other factors mm. and make excuses for it. We need to call it out as mm. that and accept that. Mm. And, um, and yes, yeah. that's the argument really yeah. is the statistics yeah. are very, very clear. And, and the, those statistics are very difficult to acknowledge as a community. You don't want to have to acknowledge the reality, but it does, I think, give us hope in that it allows us to target a response. And this is what has been lacking mm. in my view. We need to target a response with primary prevention programs, behavioral change, cultural change. Um, and we can't do that unless we actually acknowledge what's there. Um, so while all violence is wrong, and we need to combat all violence and all these types of um, issues. We also need to look at what the big pattern is right now, that there is a pattern, there is a repetition of a particular dynamic, and that needs to be addressed extremely strongly um, in programs and, and in funding and uh, in terms of government and criminal uh, justice response. I think we've got time for one more short question. Hi Rosie, I'm a survivor and I'm, I've been working as well in this field for over 25 years. Wow. So the first thing I want to say is thank you very much because you've progressed this far more and far quicker than we've been able to do mm. for the last 30 to 40 years. Thank you. I'm sorry, it's a double barrel question. We've only got one <laughs> minute and 12 five, seconds and they're going to actually of those women, kick Five us of those women who died this year had AVOs in place. Yeah. Mm. So what can we do to strengthen AVOs? Mm. And what do, we, what do you think we could do with the court system where it places the onus on a mm. victim to prove that she gave consent mm. for that uh, against alleged sexual assault mm. rather than the alleged offender having to prove yeah. that he sought and gained consent. Mm. We have so far to go within our court systems. It really is mm. quite woeful, the experiences that um, you go through and um, the emphasis that is placed on you being guilty until, no, innocent until proven guilty, yeah. but you're not believed until you, you prove yeah. that you're telling the truth. So it, it's really, um, I think what your comments were was spot on. Mm. Um, I'm gonna run out of time to try and answer yeah. it, but there is, it's going to be, take time. But there are organisations now and there seems to be political um, interest in, mm making change. It's just, we've, we've just got to keep the pressure going. We've just got to keep that pressure going. And we've got to just keep talking about it, keep um, putting pressure on, um, we've just got to keep the debate going. Keep the conversation going. And one thing you can do today is to, you know, speak to your friends about this issue. Um, go to um, Our Watch, go to Luke Batty yeah. Foundation, go to uh, Full Stop Foundation, go to 1-800-RESPECT. Learn more, uh, share with people some of these services and foundations and talk about the issue. If you're online, tweet about it. And um, let's all give a huge round of applause to the incredible Rosie Batty.